Welcome to The Diving Pod. I'm Cassidy Krug, and I competed in the 2012 Olympics in London. And I'm Heath Calhoun. And I am Aaron Rooney. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by Sideline Scout. Video replay is by far the most important tool for us in diving, and we're proud to be partners with the best in the business. Heath and I both use Poolside Live. Couldn't be any better. You can pause, rewind, go frame by frame, really get in the details of the dives. Uh, I've been looking for an app replacement, these video delay apps. They're relying on the school's spotty Wi-Fi, all that kind of fun stuff. That's all over now. Poolside Live, you got you to gotta check out sidelinescout.com. It's the best money you'll ever spend. It's worth every single penny. Make sure you get on there, check it out, get yourself a Poolside Live setup. So we're just going to jump right in here, Cassidy. And, um, you know, first and foremost, thank you for coming on. And why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about your diving journey? Um, you have a pretty uh, fun story with kind of coming from diving royalty here in the U.S., in my opinion. So uh, tell our listeners about your your diving journey. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. And I was probably at my first diving meet when I was one week old or so I'm told. Um, both of my parents are diving coaches. Um, my mom, Doe, and my dad, Julian, dove at the university or coached at the University of Pittsburgh for a long, long time. And now we're both coaching at Mission Viejo. So I guess in some ways I was born into it. Um, it's funny though. I, I went to my first diving meet when I was a week old. I grew up on the pool deck and I really actually kind of hated diving uh, when I was a kid. I, um, I did both. I did diving because I was there um, and then really loved gymnastics up until I was around 15. And then eventually I came around, grew to love diving and really started focusing on it a lot more when I was in high school. Uh, I continued diving with my parents all the way through high school. And then when I graduated, I went to Stanford where I got to dive with the incredible Rick Schiavone, who was awesome and uh, a very different kind of philosophy and different style of coaching than my parents. So I, I feel lucky that I was able to really learn from, from a bunch of different coaches that brought me a bunch of different good things. After I graduated from Stanford, I kept diving for about five years after that. I had one quick nine-month retirement, but missed it a whole lot and came back and um, continued diving and ultimately made the 2012 Olympic team in London, which was pretty much the coolest thing I've ever done. It was so much fun. That, that's incredible. Um, you know, so two follow-up questions for you. One, um, you know, you went to Stanford, which I, I feel like probably is a pretty easy decision. If you have the opportunity to go to Stanford, you probably go every time. Um, <laughs> what other schools did you look at and consider? And then the second question would be, um, you had mentioned like a different coaching philosophy going from your parents to Stanford. You know, what was the difference and, you know, how did that help you grow as an athlete? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I actually looked at a lot of different schools. I looked at Pitt. Um, I pretty seriously considered Pitt. Uh, I looked at University of Michigan and University of Miami in Florida and University of Texas and University of South Carolina. So at the time I was looking at pretty much all of the the best diving schools I could think of. And when I went to Stanford, uh, just the academic side of it really got me. I realized how much of a nerd I was. <laughs> and I feel really lucky in that period of time. I always say that my parents were the absolute best 
coach slash parents I could ever have imagined. My dad decided kind of deliberately not to recruit me at Pitt. He kind of had um, my, he had, he had the swim coach recruit me instead. And he wanted to be there to be my dad in that decision-making moment, which I thought was, was so sweet and so cool. And so he helped me to, to make the decision to go to Stanford as well. And I remember you had a follow-up question, but I forget what your second follow-up question was. Yeah. Just, um, you know, you had mentioned that your college coach had a, a pretty big difference in philosophy from your parents coaching. And I was curious as to what that difference was and how it helped you grow as an athlete. Mm -hmm. My parents taught me to love the sport. And as I just mentioned, I didn't start out loving it. Uh, they really made it fun. They made it into a game. They inspired me, both of them to try to be the best diver I could be and, and really take a lot of joy out of every practice out of every, you know, every dive, every rep, trying to get a little bit better. The love of that sport came from my parents. They also, and this kind of attaches to the fact that they were the best parent coaches ever. They didn't want to push me. They did not want to push me any further than I wanted to push myself. And I'm super grateful for that. And at the same time, around when I was graduating high school, I, I, decided I kind of wanted a little bit more of a push. Like I wanted um, a coach that would, that would maybe ask a little bit more of me. And that was kind of a deliberate choice when I went to Stanford to work with Rick. You're, you're, you're kind of leading right into my question. My question is, what was the relationship like with your parents being top level coaches and you ultimately becoming a top level diver? And, and, you know, I'm, not a father of any sort yet, but at the same time, I feel like that would be incredible, you know, to have your child love the same sport that you do. How did they go about that? And how did they nurture that relationship of not pushing you too hard, but also just kind of developing that love for the sport? I mean, they're amazing. Uh, they, I mean, but they're, they're so fantastic at, loving the sport themselves and also um, really, really being conscious of not wanting to heap any more pressure on me than I wanted to put on myself. And I think part of that is, is, is my, especially my dad's coaching philosophy. You know, he really sees himself as a tool for his divers to use, whether they're his daughter or anyone else, he kind of sees himself as a resource and he's not, um, you know, not going to make anybody do anything they don't want to do necessarily, but he's, he's there for them. And, and he was really there for me. Um, I think there were probably times when it was tough for them when, you know, I wanted to keep going to gymnastics. So my mom had to figure out how to wait, you know, a way to drive me to gymnastics practices uh, before she went into coach diving practices. So logistically it was tough. Uh, I think also, it, there might've been moments when it was tough for them that, you know, I didn't have that sort of early, early love for diving in quite the same way, but you know, they, they were there for me and they were there for whatever I wanted to do. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful um, for their coaching and also their, their parenting. That, that's awesome. Um, so, so kind of the last question for now about mom and dad, Doe and Julian is 
we've asked everybody that has in some way, shape or form crossed paths with Doe and maybe more so your dad, Julian, what is your favorite story of them as your parents? Um, you know, it seems like everybody has that goofy story of Julian and, uh, we interviewed Sam Pickens a couple weeks ago and she was just like, I just remember Doe staring at you cause you would always crack jokes. And I think she was trying to kill you with her eyes. I was like, yep, that's about it. Uh, it's a really hard question to answer. My favorite story about my parents as my parents, <laughs> but yeah, that's fair. I can tell you a recent one, which is that, uh, I just got married last month and we had this kind of wild and colorful wedding and dad insisted on wearing his Crocs to the <laughs> wedding, which I was fully supportive of that uh, mom was not as entirely on board. And so he had this kind of old pair of tie dyed Crocs he's been wearing for the last 10 years. They had no tread <laughs> and he was very, very proud of himself. Uh, he had his divers at Mission Viejo buy him a shiny new pair of tie dyed Crocs. And I think they uh, outfitted it with like 15 different charms and he was really styling at the wedding. And I, I think that is pretty representative of, of Julian. Yes, so were, were the adventure straps down for the dancing part? How'd that work? That man can do anything in Crocs. I fall out of Crocs <laughs> when I wear them, but he's a, he's a phenom in Crocs. He could probably dive in Crocs if, uh, <laughs> if it came down to it <laughs> that's wild that's so wild uh, i love it well i'm gonna i'm gonna try to get back to diving a little bit heath and i are very similar in the sense that i think both of us truly hate losing more than we even love winning you're at the top level you were at the top level of diving at the Olympics, where do you fall on that scale? Do you love winning? Do you hate losing kind of somewhere in the middle? Can you describe the mindset that you had? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's one that Rick always used to bring up to me too. Rick was a sports psychology PhD in addition to being a diving coach. And we would talk about loving winning and hating losing. And, and to be honest, I never fully understood the distinction. Uh, for, for me, I always wanted to do as well as I possibly could. I was super motivated by each and every rep and trying to make it a little bit better. And I don't know if that's hating, losing or loving winning, but the thing that drove me was really like, A, am I getting better every day in practice? And B, am I able to, to show what I can do in practice in a competition? And if I could do that, then I felt like I won, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A, a quick follow-up to that one as well. I asked Andrew Capobianco a similar question. Uh, what do you do or what did you do in practice to prepare for those top level competitions? Obviously practice is different than competing when the bright lights are on. How did you mentally prepare and what did you do to, to get ready for those big ones? That's a good question. And to be honest, for a lot of my career, I was a terrible, I got so nervous in competition. Like I remember the first meet I ever went to in China, it was in Zhuhai and it was my first international meet and it was all the way across the world. And I was so shaky. I remember my legs shaking on the board. I remember getting to the end of it. I think I was doing a front three and a half pike and I sort of like collapsed into like a front three and a something. And it, it was just competition would overwhelm me sometimes. And so I really had to work very hard at it. 
so in practices, um, we did a lot of sort of raising the intensity of practice. Um, Rick always said that anxiety has kind of the same effect on the body, no matter where it comes from. So it's like, if you have competition anxiety, that might feel similar to, you know, my coach is standing on the side of the pool deck yelling at me anxiety, which might feel similar to, you know, it's raining sideways and I have to do my dives anxiety. So we, we would try to put me under pressure in a variety of different ways in practices. The other thing that was really helpful was, you know, I always loved a good numbers workout. I loved, you know, doing 10 of each and just like being able to pick one or two out and say, Hey, I really nailed that. But for competitive readiness, it was so helpful to do one of each, you know, to do the, to do the list as it was going to be. And really, even in practice, having only one dive to do, to try to do my best kind of brought me up to that level that felt almost like a competition. So we did a lot of different things to make practice feel more competitive. And I mean, for the most part, for me, it just meant training and training and training until I felt super confident going into a meet. Yep. Do you know, you know, um, you know, you say like do one, one of each dive at practice, were there any other things that you did at practice that built that pressure that really stick out to you that other coaches can try to apply to help those athletes that maybe do go into meets and have anxiety? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think like the one of each for sure. The, you know, I remember there were times when Rick decided it was going to be a chill day and he would be lounging. You know, we got him a lounge chair every year for his birthday. So he'd be, we were outdoors. He'd be rolling around the pool deck, sort of just like lounging, making jokes. And that set the tone for that practice versus there were other times when he would be standing up, he would be leaning in, he would be, you know, yelling or, or making faces or cheering or whatever after every dive. And that set the tone for the practice too. And so I think um, his investment and his choice of what kind of an attitude he wanted us to have and what kind of a, a atmosphere he wanted to create really made a difference in our practices. That's, that's really interesting to think about. Cause I, as a coach, now I think about what do I make them do at practice in terms of what is the practice and I think it's rare. I actually look at what are my mannerisms on the pool deck and how does that correlate to their mindset? So that kind of gives me a new way to think about that. So that's pretty eye-opening. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. And it was also great because often afterwards we would chat and he would tell, you know, tell me what he'd done. You know, it, it, it could feel potentially a little bit artificial maybe if you, if we didn't have those conversations, but like, somehow I always felt like I knew and I, and I knew what he was doing and I really appreciated what he was doing and it still affected me and it still made it feel either like a meet or like a chill practice. It still worked. Um, but the fact that I was on the same page with him as well was pretty cool. That's awesome. So, so, um, you know, I'd be remiss to not bring up the fact that being around the Western Pennsylvania area, you know, I, like I had said, before we got on you, you got to coach me at one practice ever. I remember walking into the pool deck and being like, holy crap, Cassidy Krug is here. Like you were like this infamous person in my mind that I was like, I'm never going to get to meet this person, but I knew how amazing you were. And I want you to know that there are still Pennsylvania judges that to this day say you're the best diver they've ever seen dive. Oh my gosh. I'm so, 
Oh man, I feel like a celebrity. That's so cool. Yes, <laughs> you are, you are in our world, and especially in the, like the Pittsburgh area, you are. Um, but that brings me to my question. You know, you were a role model for a lot of people that came through that Pit Aquatics Club. Who were your role models? Who did you look up to? Um, coaches, divers. Who did you watch and say, "Man, I want to be like them"? Whenever you were younger. Okay. One of my biggest role models, and I'm so excited because I actually ended up getting to dive with her later in my career, was Laura Wilkinson. And I think it's so amazing that she is now back diving and, you know, an on the deck in person role model for so many other generations. But, um, you know, I remember watching her in the 2000 Olympics and just being like, holy crap, she has a broken foot. She won the Olympics with a broken foot. And so, her, you know, that toughness and that uh, determination and, and, her ability to kind of make that choice and follow through with it and give her all, I, you know, it's awe-inspiring to me. Absolutely. Laura actually had one of the dives that I remember as a kid. She had a reverse three and a half for straight tens. And I just, I remember watching that one on TV, like, okay, this is really cool. I like this sport. I think this, I think I'm going to stick with this. So she, <laughs> yeah. she, she had a lot of inspiring moments in her career as well as after her diving career. And I mean, the prolonged diving career, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, yeah. you know, speak, speaking of injuries, we know you dealt with a fairly serious injury. Um, talk to us through that, what you did to get back and, uh, go through everything there. I did. So it was in 2008 and I was struggling with some back problems. So I would, you know, get crooks in my neck and especially when I went to meets, you know, you get to a meet, you might be a little uptight. You might be a little out of alignment when you're double bouncing the board and that like certainly doesn't help. So I had been sort of managing that and I got to go to the world cup in Beijing, which was in February and which was a test event for the Beijing Olympics. Mm -hmm. And so I was there, I was, you know, so excited, so uptight, so intent. And we got off the plane, which is a, I don't know, 20 something hour day of travel. And we went in and we just were doing some warm ups and lead ups and things like that. And I threw for a dive and I remember my arm just burning all the way down. Um, I think I was doing a front two and a half bike on one meter or something like that. And, uh, I took some days off and, but, uh, you know, I'm at the world cup, the test event for the Olympics and also need to earn a spot. So I couldn't take that much time off. So I went back in and, and I immediately kind of knew something wasn't right. Like I would go to throw for a front and my left arm would throw just great. And my right arm would just kind of drop. And I, and I felt like I just couldn't use it. And what, what was happening was I was pinching, I had impinged the nerve that goes down my right arm and the signal wasn't getting through and I really wasn't able to use my arm. Um, and so I ended up having to drop out of that competition. And the, the worst thing about a nerve problem is that there's a real easy solution. You take a lot of time off, but if you're uh, trying to make an Olympic team in several months, that's not always an option. So I, I, the, the hardest part was that I actually took a couple months off and just sitting there not doing anything. Cause it's, you know, if it's a back problem, you really, there's not much you can do without bothering it and, and just watching the calendar, <laughs> like watching the days go by <laughs> and we got, we we're getting closer and closer to Olympic trials. So, um, 
finally I got back in. I ended up competing in Olympic trials in 2008, but I just didn't have enough reps under my belt and I didn't, uh, didn't do well and I didn't make the team. And that was actually uh, the first time I retired. So I had always said that I would graduate. I graduated in 2007 from college. I would graduate. Um, I would give it one more year of really training and trying my hardest to make an Olympic team. And then I would move on with my head held high. And I, I felt I, for the most part, I followed through with that plan. I uh, retired after the Olympic trials. I got a job. Um, I happened to get a job at the Stanford Alumni Association, which was only a five minute walk from the pool. So maybe something in my subconscious was, was telling me I wasn't done yet, but it actually was about nine months. And I realized I missed it. And it also happened that that nine months was the time off that I needed to heal my back. So it's going to be, and then I, you know, I came back, um, and, and trained for what, three and a half more years and, and did make the Olympic team. But no, the, the worst part about that injury was just, you know, there wasn't much you could do other than not do anything, which is the worst when you're really, really trying to hustle and trying to make an Olympic team. Right. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. It, it almost just sounds like it was like a blessing in disguise that you had decided to retire and the time off you needed versus saying, I'm going to stay in it because then maybe over those nine months, you're trying to figure out a way to train through it or, or whatever it may have been. Do you think that was like just a blessing in disguise that you didn't even realize until afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. And I never really realized how well that all fit together until just now, as I was talking <laughs> through the story, but yeah, for sure. And I also, I mean, in addition to healing my body, um, I had been a little burned out and that was another reason why I was ready to retire. You know, I, I, and I also, I remember all my friends graduating and sort of moving on to these fancy jobs and, and the world seemed so big and I wanted to explore that. And so I, and I really needed to do that for nine months to realize that a, you know, the world is big, but I really do love diving and I really do yeah. have unfinished business here. And I really, it, it renewed sort of my love for it and also my body, yeah. which was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Spe special thanks to uh, Sam Pickens. Actually, she's the one that kind of told us that you had an injury because she had said how she was battling an injury at one point in her career. And she actually was like, I, if I recall correctly, Aaron, I think she said she called you and you're like, Oh, like you got to trust the process. And, that's how we found out about it. Um, you know, so, so my last question before we get into our signature questions are, you know, what are you up to now? Um, hobbies, what, what are you doing for a career? What does the future hold? And, and part of this is a, uh, is a selfish question because I read the article you actually wrote, um, about the Olympics and how there was no fans. And I had noticed how at the end you might be working on a book. That's true. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so, yeah, so I retired after the 2012 Olympics from diving. Um, and for the last eight years or so, or for the next eight years or so after that, I was working in brand strategy and marketing. I moved to New York City. Um, I also discovered trapeze, which is a delightful retirement activity. Um, I'm actually coming to you live from the trapeze school right now. So if you hear uh, sounds of athletics in the background that's what's going on um so for most of the time since diving I've spent um you know working 
a pretty intense nine to five and teaching trapeze and trampolines on trampoline on the weekends and learning tra- uh, trapeze, which is great because I get to apply a lot of the skills that I learned in diving to something totally different with weird timing and, and, and something totally new. Um, so that's what I've been doing. And then shortly before pandemic, I decided to quit my job. Well, first I went on a sabbatical and then I quit my job to write a book. And I'm currently working on a book about what elite athletes do after they retire from sports. So I've interviewed 36 athletes now from all different sports, from winter and summer Olympics, um, from different eras. Some of them are sort of famous, others are not. And it's about you know, what you do when this thing that has been your passion, your activity, your heart, your soul for so long is not there anymore. And how people have sort of found meaning and purpose in their lives moving forward. Wow. That, that sounds like yeah. an incredible book. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm excited now. Holy cow. It, it honestly, it reminds me, uh, I've been working through this enormous book. It's called tribe of mentors by Tim Ferriss. And he went and interviewed tech people and sports people. And it sounds exactly like what you're doing, except yours is focused on athletics. And so I am super excited for whenever that comes out in the future. Awesome. Thank you. And I'm excited to read this Tim Ferriss book. Um, But yeah, I I have a lot of writing to do, but the interviews have been so cool. I've gotten to meet some of my own heroes through this. And now it's a matter of doing a heck of a lot of writing and trying to figure out how, you know, 15 different chapters on 15 different people kind of fit together into a narrative, which is fun. Right. That's awesome. Well, that's really cool. So you, you touched a little bit on trapeze. You say you're there at this moment in time. How, how do you get into that? How do you find <laughs> that? I, I feel like, you know, the, the segue from diving using your body in that way is similar, at least in the trapeze world. Can you go into some more details on that? Yeah. So I, um, after I retired, I moved to New York and I spent almost a year doing not very much physical. (laughs) Uh, I, I ran, um, but mostly I was just like enjoying the fact that I wasn't, um, you know, wasn't doing all that, that much. And then I I decided I really started to to miss being upside down and flipping. And so I was thinking through what might be a suitable next activity for me. And I came up with three possibilities. I was like, I could either learn parkour. uh, I could try to find someone to teach me how to pole vault because that's always seemed really fun. Or I could try trapeze. And my, my office actually happened to be very close to the trapeze school in New York, which is on a, on the roof of a parking lot. So you could see it from the ground. So I would see it walking around and be like, that looks like something very, very fun. And, um, I ended up just raising, uh, an old friend of mine, Brendan Burchek, who became a high diver, got in touch with me and he was like, Hey, we're looking for high divers for this new show. You want to join? And I was like, heck no, I never even did 10 meter, (laughs) but we started chatting. I told him about my need for, for flipping around and learning something new and that I was interested in maybe learning trapeze. And he had a friend that worked at the trapeze school. And so I got to meet her and they needed a new trampoline instructor. And you know what? a quarter of my diving training was on a trampoline. So that fit really well. So I got to come in teach trampoline and learn trapeze. And that's how I got into it. 
That's really cool. I saw, I saw a video, I think it was on your Instagram. You did like a, like a, I want to call it a double fly away into somebody else's arms. Like it's, it's crazy. You said the timing and the flipping it's unbelievable. Yeah, that was a double layout. It's so fun. And it's, um, and it's pretty cool. Right. Cause like I, you know, my, my, my basic trick right now is a double pike and gosh, how many double pikes did I do when I was diving, you know, never off of a bar into someone else's arms, but it's a pretty cool way to, to learn something quickly and to use the skills that I have learned and apply them to something new. But yeah, the, the timing is interesting. Um, they're the catcher. So there, I, I work with a couple of really, really phenomenal catchers and I really owe all the catches to them. They're the ones with the hand-eye coordination. They're the ones that tell me when to go. They're the ones that figure out how high they have to swing in order to catch me. And I just have to go and do my trick just the same way I practiced it. Uh, just the same as, you know, when I used to compete and I used to try to do my trick just the same way I practiced it. So yeah, it's, it's fun to do. It's fun to do as part of a team. Highly recommend for any other retired or current divers. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was going to say, it's got to take a certain level of trust and a certain level of, Hey, this is what you need to be doing with your body or I can't catch you type of thing. Is there a lot of that? There's a ton of trust. Um, so basically if you picture the flying trapeze, if a catcher decides he's not going to be able to hold on to me, then the best thing he can do is not try to catch me. And okay. he has to know that. So, and if he doesn't catch me, then I do the trick. I land in a net, which is basically a soft trampoline and, and that's fine. If a catcher thinks they can hold on, but can't. So if he catches me and I swing out a little bit, then all of a sudden I'm slingshotting, you know, into yep. the unknown and that's uncomfortable. So it, it takes a ton of skill and a ton of trust um, for a for me to be able to trust a catcher with my biggest tricks. And so, and, and having that kind of partnership has been super cool. And I totally trust the catchers that I've been working with. And, you know, because of that, I've been able to do the flying trapeze and then, you know, they throw you back, you turn around, you re-grab the bar and you go back to the place you came from. And it's, and it's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. I, I am, really really interested i want to see a show i want to i want to watch that'd be really cool what we're going to do now we're going to get into our signature questions cassidy everybody who comes on this podcast we just ask them the same uh same questions my first one here is what is your favorite failure or just your best learning experience uh, my favorite failure is probably the experience that i alluded to earlier of just that that horrible, horrible meet in China where I fell off the side of the board and landed flat in the water. And I, just, I still remember, you know, coming up um, and seeing that tidal wave hit the gutter. And I'm pretty sure that everybody in the audience laughed at me because that was, I guess, a thing, um, a cultural thing that they did. And, and so I, I remember that experience so viscerally and that experience, I think, kind of haunted me for the next seven, eight years of my career. It would, it would come back uh, when I was in a competition, when I was in the most stressful moments and I would, I would kind of flash back to that and it didn't go well. Um, but learning how to overcome that fear and learning how to kind of reframe that memory and learning how to 
reinterpret the butterflies and the jitters that I was feeling as something that could make me stronger uh, really set the stage for me to have my best competitions. And honestly, my best competitions ever were the 2012 Olympic trials and the 2012 Olympics. Like my biggest competition, the world stage, the ones that mattered most, those were the ones that I felt great at. And I think it was because I had done the work to overcome the fear and, and just kind of the, the negative thoughts that led to that fear. And so it, it absolutely was my worst diving moment, but it also represents the thing that I'm proudest of, which is that I, I ultimately really, really loved competition by the end. Right. Well, good deal. The last one I'll ask you here, uh, you've been to the Olympics, you've been to Olympic trials. What as a country can the United States do to improve in the diving world? That's a, that's a, that's another good question. Um, I think we're already doing it. No, I think we are, we are consistently improving in the diving world. Um, I think that we're already getting so much better at, you know, teaching basics and having, you know, really good progressions from dry land to spring, you know, to, to, to lead ups to actual competition dives and like really, really drilling in the basics. And I think that's really important. Um, and I think, I don't know. I think we've just continually gotten kind of more successful and I'm excited to, to see us continue to do that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Those last Olympics was pretty successful. That's the, there, there's no doubt about that. I think as a country, we took home the second most amount of medals uh, right behind China. So pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Super cool. Um, so now my questions for you, Cassidy, you know, what was your favorite drill to do as an athlete, whether it was in the water or dry land? Favorite drill to do as an athlete. Um, I really love, okay. So I have a couple answers to this question, mm -hmm. but, uh, so my dad was a real big proponent of the upper Porter pit yes. <laughs> in which in which yes. you stack up mats until they're so ridiculously high that you don't think you can do anything on them. And then you do like, you know, double pikes on them, things yep. like that. And I loved how fun that was. Um, I loved how it wasn't just, you know, doing a drill to, to kind of put something into your body. It was a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I loved the, I mean, the kind of the results spoke for themselves. Like if you can do a double pike on the upper porta pit, then you've probably done some of the right stuff in your double pike. Um, so I like mm -hmm. that, that uh, we, and we did so many of those, you yes. know, I like that that inspired yes. us to work really hard to do a lot of reps and, and to make kind of a game out of it too. So that was one of my favorites. Um, I'm trying to think of what else was really, really helpful you know, later on in my career. Um, like my always was sort of fighting my hurdle, you know, I had this sort of modified kind of hop hurdle and, you know, hop hurdles is like, if, if you've got the right balance, then they are great. They will send you to the moon, but if you are unbalanced or you are out of time or something is wrong, then, then 
then they're not so great. <laughs> so um, I just remember Rick used to have me do this thing that my mom called the twinkle toes hurdle, where I would just like prance down the end of the board, which felt so silly, but also felt like it really helped me. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it, but it really helped me get in rhythm. But like, it's like Rick was great at sort of devising drills that really helped me sort of find, find the rhythm of my hurdle, which was important for it to end up working for me. Awesome. It's funny you mentioned the upper porta pit because at Clarion where I'm coaching now, we, we have like, we have three dry boards and it's all the low mat, but on one of them, it's two, two like half size porta pits. So I just pull one of them up. And we use the upper porta pit and it's been amazing how much it helps my divers from like a psychological perspective to be like, Oh, I can do back two and a quarter on the upper porta pit. I definitely can do back two and a half. No problem. And you see how much it actually helps. So I'm happy you mentioned that. Um, so this one, I think we'll have a good answer is what's the best advice you have either given and or received, um, at this point in your life. Hmm. Best advice. I have either given or received at this point in my life. I think it is. It's like, whatever you do, be all in, in the moment. And I say in the moment, because I, I when I think of the, the times in my life that I have felt the best, that I've been the most successful, I've been doing a lot of different stuff. You know, when I was in, I was in school at Stanford and I was diving at Stanford and, and later I was working at Stanford and diving at the same time. Um, but I was able to kind of devote my all to every practice that I was in. Um, Rick always said, I remember this from my freshman year. He was like, diving comes first and school comes first. And I think that's something that I've, that I applied to my life in college and have tried to apply to my life since then, which is like, yes, the, the world is big enough and, and you're capable of doing multiple things, but whatever you're doing, try to do that while you're there and try to be the best you can at that. That's a, that's a great way to describe it. I'm definitely going to steal that and tell my college athletes that and they're going to be like, what the heck you always say schools first. I'm going to be like, but now I have a different perspective on it. Um, and then my last question for you is who else would you like to hear us interview in the future? I would love to hear, have you interviewed Laura Wilkinson yet? Next mm -hmm. Monday we get to interview uh, her. <laughs> amazing. I'm yep. so excited for that one. We as, um, as well. I, so that's super cool. Christian Ibsen, my Stanford buddy. Are you, have you interviewed him yet? uh in like two weeks oh he's coming God. on in a couple weeks yes yep. we're gonna have him on he's got a really cool thing going on with, as well with that sport meet yeah it's yes. super cool um yeah so he's awesome i think i'm just maybe i'll just like list out your next interviews in order <laughs> let me guess who's next um i can tell you that for my book i've chatted with scott doney and he's fantastic and he's oh, got a lot of go. great stories and really great wisdom um I've also spent a long time talking with Meg Nyer, who's awesome. She's, you know, experienced so much from a personal perspective. And then also she's got, you know, she's coach and she's got her sports psychology uh, lens on. So I've learned a lot from her. Um, those are the ones that come to mind first, but I'm so excited that you've got Laura and Christian on deck. That's really cool. Yeah, we're excited. I actually think I need to make a phone call to Julian tomorrow and be like, all right, Julian, why did we, why were we able to get Cassidy before you? 
I would love <gasps> to get your mom and dad on the podcast together. That would be amazing. <laughs> I'll try to put in a good word for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I but... owe my mom a phone call, so I'll, I'll uh, give her a call and tell her to be on the podcast with dad. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, well, I know Aaron says a few things before you head out, but uh, thank you for coming on Cassidy. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join us this evening. Thank you so much. This is such an honor. I love what you guys are doing. I love that you're kind of sharing all of these stories from the world of diving. So cool. Yes. It's kind of been fun. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, anybody else listening out there, hit us up on Instagram. We're at the diving pod and our Gmail is the diving pod at gmail.com. Uh, we still have t-shirts for sale. Just enter the coupon code dive pod at checkout from cowingrobards.com. I'll pay for your shipping wherever you need me to send it to. I'll send you a little message as well, but just wanted to say thanks again, Cassidy, for, uh, for joining us. It's always a, a pleasure when we get an Olympian on the podcast and um, kind of somebody from, uh, from diving royalty over there in pits. So I hope to uh, hope to at some point, maybe catch a trapeze show. Yes. Come to New York. Let me know. You can not only catch a trapeze show, you can try trapeze if you're into that sort of thing. Ooh, that could be fun. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, thank you very much. We will see you next time.